This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 190. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I'm joined by Mr. Jacob Paulson. Howdy, 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 howdy. How are you doing today? Good. That was a quote from Toy Story. What a wonderful movie. <laughs> it is indeed. Nice. Hey, I'm thinking it's episode number 190, Riley. We probably should do something big for episode 200. We should be thinking about that right now. I think I said something about that last episode, that episode 200 is coming up, so we should plan on doing something for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll think about it, I guess. Hmm. I wonder what folks would be interested in. Like yeah. giveaway, maybe? Maybe a big giveaway, give away some stuff. Something. So send us an email or send us a comment, podcast at concealedcarry.com, and let us know what you'd like to see us do or give away for episode 200. Absolutely. By the way, I'm bringing back a dear friend of mine, Jacob. This is not going to go well. Root beer. I know. <sighs> All right. Well, you drink your root beer, and uh, I'm sure it'll keep you nice and steady. Who are our sponsors today, Jacob? Our sponsors today. How about the CERT Pocket Pistol, just because I happen to have one here readily. So they launched this last year, 2017, and uh, pretty excited about this. I use this all the time now. This is kind of like one of my go-to CERTs because more and more I have been carrying a smaller uh, gun, a Glock 43, and I'm hoping before too long to be carrying that new SIG P365, by the way. But anyway, so how about uh, CERT from Next Level Training, the Pocket Pistol? It's becoming a top seller on our website, very relatively affordable. And uh, yeah, so how about that? CERT Pocket Pistol. Awesome. Good stuff. And of course, our usual, basically our podcast series sponsor is always Guardian Nation for the most part. You've got your hat on today. I'm sorry. I don't know where mine is today. So Yeah. GuardianNation.com. Go check out GuardianNation.com for great stuff, great products, great training, great information, all at GuardianNation.com. Be our other sponsor today. So let's get into today's topic. And so I've got a question here from Chris. Actually, not so much a question. Excuse me. It's not a question. This is uh, really an email he sent us. Once again, if you'd like to contact us, you can do so through sending us an email, podcast at concealedcarry.com. And uh, so he sent in this question, uh, an article, or, or this comment, an article from Task and Purpose. That's a great website, by the way, taskandpurpose.com. And this article says medical marijuana users have 30 days to turn in their guns, Honolulu police. Now, I think the reason, Chris, you might have sent this in was because... We had done we had done a uh, story we had covered a story uh, that had said Honolulu Police Department won't take guns from medical marijuana users, and so um, I wanted to clarify this situation. All right, because there is a news story about Honolulu PD taking guns potentially away from medical marijuana users, but that was a story that was posted uh, on December second, two thousand seventeen. The Journalist is Kristen Concilio, okay? Kristen, same Kristen, on December 5th, so three days later, then posted an updated article, and apparently after a lot of blowback, plus a desire for clarification from residents of Honolulu, uh, 
that's when we see this second article, which is the one we covered on the podcast several weeks ago. Uh, and basically, Honolulu Police Department came out and said, no, we are not going to be forcing medical uh, marijuana users to be turning in their guns. So, that, that Chris, I appreciate you sending in that article. Uh, and that's a good, I think that's a really important clarification to make. If you're in that, if you're in Honolulu uh, and you're a medicinal user of marijuana, and you listen to this podcast, you got nothing to worry about, I guess, unless it's the federal government. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just checking for fun to see how many Hawaii uh, listeners we have in the podcast. It's it's not our most popular state. In fact, it is the least popular state other than Vermont. So apparently we don't have that many listeners from, from Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I don't imagine we have too many concealed carriers in Hawaii, unfortunately. Pretty hard to get a permit. Well, you, you can't get a permit. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Indeed. So appreciate you uh, emailing us at uh, at the show, Chris. All right. So next question or comment. It's not really so much a question once again. So Greg from California, he writes in this. He says, guys, I just listened to your most recent podcast. Now he said this in uh, about a week ago. So this may have been a couple episodes ago. And he said, I wanted to shed some light on some of the laws we have here in California regarding the ammo background check. I believe it is once per year, and then you are good for the rest of the year to purchase ammo, and I think it costs a $50 one-time fee. Um, as far as Jacob moving to California, no, he doesn't have to give all his guns to Riley. Oh, dang it. I was hoping for that. Although, maybe his ammo. <laughs> For guns, you just have to register them with the DOJ on California.gov, CA.gov, within 90 days of moving here. Now, I verified all of this, okay? Uh, you, do have, you do not have to take them to an FFL, and I do not believe there is a limit on the number you can register at one time. My dad just moved here from Louisiana with a gun, and the whole process takes a few minutes, and you can do it online. That being said, I hate the fact that my state government has a record of my firearms, but it's better than not having any. A message on all of, a message to all of your listeners. Please don't give up on California. Large cities ex excluded, we are a very pro two-way state and need voices to stick up for us because our state and local government will not do it. Thanks for all you do, guys. Greg. Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking about how Hawaii is the second least common state for someone to download our podcast. California is the number one top state for someone to download and listen to this podcast. So, Greg, I appreciate your, your comments. And obviously, um, you know, this is a good audience uh, to, to say those things. And it is interesting. You know, we, we talked about that internally the other day in a company meeting. We are talking about how, you know, there's sort of this tendency to say, I got to get out of this state. It's so anti-gun, you know, whether we're referring to California or, or some other ones. But that's just going to make that state all that much more anti-gun, right? Uh, so it's, it, you know, not always the ideal solution. Everyone's got to make a personal choice, but I, I appreciate your comments about don't give up on California. And also thank you for clarifying, you know, some of the things that I had, I think I had talked earlier about the ammo laws and some of those changes. So thank you for you know, calling us out and, and getting us some clarity. Well, <laughs> I guess we should be the experts here, Jacob, but you, I don't know if you can necessarily hold us accountable for, us non-Californians, I mean, things are so different in California in a lot of ways that it's hard to understand all the laws when, when you don't actually live with them. As I imagine, many of you guys that are there spend a good deal of time researching those laws and making sure you understand them because I think you do need to be quite a bit more careful uh, in a state like California. Now, uh, like I said, I did look all this up, and right on their website, it clarifies the, pr the procedure. Uh, basically says that if you are moving into California with a firearm, 
that you know as long as you register those firearms within 60 days, uh, the handguns you are not required to. So I guess this is one way of getting a handgun that is not on their approved list, Jacob, into the state, because it basically says that you are exempt if you are moving into the state with uh, handguns that are not on their approved list. At least that's what it said on the website. And it does clarify that if you're transporting handguns into California to make sure that you do it uh, with them unloaded and in a locked container other than the glove compartment or utility compartment of the vehicle when you come into the state. So don't go into the state with your personal handguns loaded. And then it also is clear, it makes a clarification that assault weapons don't come here with assault weapons. And that basically assault weapons means for them uh, they're talking about AR-15s, AK-47s, particularly if they have greater than 30-round capacity magazines. Don't go into the state with those large-capacity magazines. Okay. So there you go. I hope that's helpful for uh, folks. And so let's see here. Now we get to, and this is what I intend to make the bulk of our uh, content here today, and I think this is really good uh, discussion to have. And, and by the way, uh, many of you may be just uh, listening to this podcast only today, but we are doing this live on Facebook today. So we may have a few comments and things come in on this. And by all means, feel free to share those comments with us. Uh, so a, a listener from Washington State, and he, he wanted to remain completely anonymous in this. Uh, he, he writes in and says this, I'm a subscriber of your podcast and greatly appreciate all the information you share. I'm a licensed concealed carrier in the state of Washington and an elementary teacher in a, elementary teacher in a public school. While I'm aware of one school district in this state that allows teachers and staff to carry concealed, this is certainly not the norm. My school district would not entertain the idea of allowing teachers to carry concealed. That's too bad. I'm wondering if you might be able to give some insight into what, if any, self-defense tools slash weapons teachers in Washington State may legally carry on their person while working at school. Thanks for all you do. So there's the question from our listener in Washington. And so I did some research and I went to the state of Washington's website and started digging down in through their laws as it relates to public schools. And so I got quite a bit here that we can discuss. And I suspect many states may be similar. However, just so that we're clear, you're going to want to check this, the laws of your local jurisdictions and or states about anything that we're going to talk about here today. But we are going to talk about some, some techniques, some tips, some tricks or whatever as to what or how you may carry certain things uh, in public schools for self-defense. Jacob, yeah, you, looked like you had a comment. I did. I, I discovered I had muted myself. Yeah, so, and I think that we're going to try our best to kind of give some general advice here you know, that would be helpful for all listeners and at the same time mention some Washington specifics. So I, I think let's start with, with this idea that yep. there's, there's, a, there's a distinction here between private schools and public schools. So I think that's, a, that's kind of as broad, uh, you know, high level of this topic that I could start at uh, is, is this idea that, well, are we talking about private schools or are we talking about public schools? Because public schools, uh, and, and, you know, they're obviously regulated, owned by, funded by the government. Uh, the people who work there are government employees, uh, et cetera, right? Whereas private schools, not so much. They are not 
generally funded by the, the government, though they might get some grants depending on the school. Um, the employees are not employees of the government, and the property is not owned by the government in the case of a private school. So there's a distinction there. Now, depending on the state, it may not matter. There, there could be plenty of states out there that have a law that say any, you know, educational institution or, you know, they might, you know, any school, public or private or something like that. Um, but there are certainly plenty of states where there's a massive distinction in the law where restrictions may only apply to public schools. So that's a really important uh, you know, consideration. You know, from there, and I'm, I'm going to give you a chance, Riley, to comment or add something, but I also want to talk about the gun-free, the guns, oh my goodness, Gun-Free School Zone Act. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> and so, you know, actually to that to that point, by the way, uh, Washington State is very clear in that they quote in this this. Uh, and we'll I'll just make sure we share these links in the show notes. Uh, but they say there are some exemptions about weapons in school zones, and they re they reference the GFSZA, the Gun Free Schools Zone Act that you just re referenced, Jacob. And then they say it provides an allowance for licensed persons to possess firearms within a thousand feet of a school. And state law allows those licensed to carry a concealed pistol to possess a firearm on school grounds while picking up or dropping off a student. Uh, this is very similar in many states with concealed carry permits and laws like this, where uh, in Colorado, for instance, it's, it's basically the same thing. You can have a, a weapon, a firearm with you inside the vehicle, uh, on school property even, even if it requires you pulling into a school parking lot to drop off a student or whatever, as long as you remain inside the vehicle and in the event that you've got to get out of the vehicle, you you must leave the weapon inside the vehicle in a compartment. So it's got to be inside some sort of compartment. I usually just use a little uh, uh, portable quick access handgun uh, safe. Okay, and so you got to leave it in there in the vehicle. And once you're out of the vehicle, you also got to make sure the vehicle is locked. Now that's specific to Colorado. I, I actually didn't see anything in here about Washington State saying that you can leave the weapon in the vehicle uh, when you get out of the vehicle. I didn't see that. I didn't find that anywhere. But that's how it works here in Colorado. So once again, there's a good example of how maybe laws may vary from state to state. But many states do allow permittees to go within a thousand feet of a school or on school property, even if you're if it's for the purpose of dropping off kids or for a quick visit or whatever, as long as you're staying in that vehicle uh, and, you, and you've got a permit, a properly you're properly licensed or permitted or whatever, right? Okay, so so basically, school policy and state law in the state of Washington specifically obviously does not allow any firearms and specifically they state here prohibited weapons include butterfly knives, switchblade knives, daggers, martial arts weapons including nunchucks and throwing stars, metal knuckles, air guns and stun guns or taser devices. So that's pretty clear that that, that eliminates a lot of so in other words what we see there is we are also eliminating out of this uh, uh, things like tasers, you can't have a taser or a stun gun or anything like that as a personal uh, defense weapon. And this is including teachers or students, it doesn't matter. There's another clarification that should be made, by the way. In some schools, it, it may be that you can carry certain things with you into that school, but students may be prohibited by that school policy, and teachers might not necessarily be prohibited. So that's another clarification that should be made. Um, there is some clarification specific to Washington State here that says state law does not prohibit the possession of common pocket knives or other sharp tools on school grounds. However, school policies, once again, that's kind of what I touched on just a second ago, and the rules 
do typically prohibit students from possessing knives on school grounds or at school events. Local ordinances may also prohibit minors from possessing knives either on or off school grounds. So these are good things to consider and be aware of and mindful of. And once again, for all of you viewing or listening, you're going to want to check your local laws and school policies to see what it says specific to these things. But specific to Colorado, uh, it, or excuse me, to Washington State, you can have common pocket knives. So that would be the, the first answer, I think, as to as far as a self-defense tool that you might have on your person, Mr. You-know-who-you-are listening uh, that, that wrote in with the question. Uh, you can have a common pocket knife on you. Uh, that can be a self-defense tool. Absolutely right there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so let's, let's, let's touch, let's start at the federal level and work our way down. So for those of you who are wondering a little bit more about what the gun schools, gun-free school zone act is, what that law essentially says, a federal law, and it would be amended by the way, if the uh, reciprocity act passed. But anyway, the, the law allows uh, that someone may not have a firearm within a school zone, which has been defined as a thousand feet, unless otherwise permitted by the state. Very yep. clear and very simple, yep. right? Unless you're otherwise pro unless you're otherwise permitted by the state, you may not have a firearm within a thousand feet of a school. So that that's that's what it says, right? That that that's what it says. So then we have to say, okay, well if if my state has no law that allows me to have a gun near a school then even if they don't have a, a law prohibiting it, it's still illegal because the federal government so, says so. So it's illegal to have a gun within a thousand feet of the school unless there's some state law that allows for it, um, mm -hmm. and, and that law, yep. you know, ha has to be pretty clear. So consider that 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 even that's very impactful for some of you who may be in constitutional carry states or permitless carry states. If you live in, you know, Vermont or you know Arizona or something. Uh, you know, Arizona is actually a bad example. But if you live in a state that's permitless carry and you've chosen to not pursue a permit, it might be that the state law allows that someone with a permit, you know, be within a certain feet of a school. But someone who's just carrying, you know, constitutionally without a permit maybe cannot because of that federal law. So that that's a good starting point and a distinction that might be be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for the clarification on that. Um so I touched on knives. Knives are are permissible, assuming they're common knives. I don't think this means that you would you you wouldn't want to walk in there with a large K bar or uh, you know some kind of combat you know knife or something. Um, here's an interesting one about Washington State, by the way, Jacob. Protective spray devices. So it says students age age of fourteen and older may legally possess personal protective spray devices such as mace and pepper spray. I was kind of well, surprised when I read this, by the way. I'm not, what was I'm the not, age? How old did they have to be? 14 and older. 14 and older. If so, that student yeah. has parental permission, schools or other units of government may not prohibit, prohibit the possession of personal protection spray devices if the student is at least 14 years of age with parent permission or any person age 18 or older. So uh, that's another thing that could be a, a potential uh, self-defense uh, you know, weapon, if you will, and that would be the mace or similar type of uh, product. Yeah, that's really cool, actually, that Washington does that. Um, I think it's cool because what they're they're essentially saying is schools, you may not create a, a school-specific policy, right? This is non-Trumpable. This is state law. You have to allow, you know, students or faculty, I imagine, ages 14 plus with parent permission 
to to have these items. I think that's awesome. I think that's actually really cool. I, I don't know how common that is in other states, but I do suspect that it is very common that most states would allow a faculty member at very least to have mace or pepper spray. Um, tasers and stun guns often kind of fall in this questionable list. In fact, in some cities, they're completely illegal. You know, right. in the whole city, New Jersey, even yeah, like, you know, for parts a whole of Louisiana, state. New Orleans. I mean, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of weird things. But um, I, 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 so I understand why you know some schools are you know. If they're going to block guns, they would probably consider blocking tasers and, and stun guns. But mace and pepper spray is probably more broadly accepted because it, it's not. There's, there's, you'd be really hard stretched to find any instance or you know, news story or research to substantiate that it could actually kill someone, right? It is very much so just a de- temporary de- dehabilitating uh, you know, tool. Right, right. So let's talk about this in the context of what can you do? You're, let's imagine, let's put ourselves in the position of we are in a public school and we we have a situation. Something occurs, whether it's an active shooter, maybe it's a limited event, maybe it's just a really violent fight that breaks out. Um, what are some of the things, tactics, tips, tools, whatever, what are some of the things we can do to defend ourselves? So in some schools, uh, depending on your state, depending on your locale, depending on school policy, you may be able to have a, a common pocket knife. Okay, so obviously a knife can can be an effective defensive tool. However, it is limited in that it's it's limited to however long my arms are and my reach. Um, and also, I would caution you about attempting to use knives as a fighting tool if you don't have a lot of experience actually, you know, or training with using a knife uh, in the context of a fight. Uh, knife fights are very ugly, very difficult uh, to to endure, to be honest with you. Um, here's another one, a tactical pen, all right, which, I mean, this, some some schools you may not be, be able to, or some jurisdictions, you might, you might not be able to have a common pocket knife like you can in Washington, D. Washington State, but maybe you can have a simple tactical pen that doesn't qualify uh, as a as a stabbing implement, although this certainly could be used in in self defense context, it's not as effective as a knife, but it certainly could be used, right? Mm-hmm. But once again, I'm limited to my reach, and you know, so it's you know within arm's reach. The mace or pepper spray that was an interesting one, since that is permissible in Washington State. That has a little bit greater reach than than some of these other um, devices, but those aren't going to necessarily they may stop some attackers, right? But for some guys, it may just deter them or slow them down for a time, depending on what the attack is. I mean, if a guy still has a gun in his hand, he may have a hard time seeing now that you've sprayed him in the face with pepper spray, but he, he maybe he can still just start shooting blindly because they don't care who, the, who they're, you know, they don't necessarily care to aim in some of these attacks. So uh, those, those are some things to consider. I mean, knives and, and other stabbing tools, limited as far as reach. Pepper spray is great. But why do we have pepper spray? We use pepper spray to create that diversion, to slow them down, and then we can go to, to, to whatever the next step is, whether it's disarming that individual, whether it's grappling with them, taking them down to the ground, disarming them, whatever. Uh, or if we had to, at that point, we can get in close now that we have sprayed them in the face with, with mace or whatever, and maybe now, because they still present a deadly threat, maybe now the knife comes it comes out. Uh, per, assuming I can't disarm that individual. So so there's a couple of things, and I've got a whole bunch of other ideas about uh, other tools and weapons that you might find or use inside of a school. But uh, just based on that, what are your thoughts, Jacob? 
a couple of points of clarification, and then I'm going to throw in some research and some history just for fun. But um, tactical pen, ten, pens, I, I have some interesting feelings about tactical pens. I, you know, there's a lot of companies out there who make some pretty fancy looking things that they want to sell you that, you know, will do this, that, and the other thing and break through this. And and I think that some of those things, they, they look awkward. They look funky. Your students and other faculty members are going to think you're a crackpot. And you might even end up, you know, with, with an issue in terms of, with, with faculty and administration. So, I, I, you know, remember that a, a, a tactical pen is nothing more than a solid piece of metal. It's a metal, it's a metal shaft that happens to have a pen in it. Uh, in some cases, they have an actual kind of sharp, uh, sharp kind of point that they come to, and then a separate po place for the for the actual writing instrument. Uh, in the, many cases, like the one that Riley that you have there, uh, they they don't. They, you know, it's just it's, they don't need a sharp point. Just jab it; it'll work. The the point is that you know basically any good solid metal pen would function to some degree as a you know. As a, as, a, as a striking instrument. Some that are built stronger for that purpose are probably going to be more effective than like a, you know, a zebra you know, pen that's just kind of your average aluminum uh, shaft. But, but any, any solid metal pen can act pretty effectively as a striking instrument. And, and frankly, it wouldn't be that hard for you to find news stories of pencils that have been pretty effective striking instruments uh, you know, when, when improvising. So th those are all things to consider. Those can be very, very effective. Um, another interesting thought and, and you know, a comment here from uh, Katie Ann on, on Facebook, she says, it's much harder to control the spray of something like pepper spray or mace in a crowd or school fight. And that's another really, I think, valid point is that sometimes when we think about this, we're, each of us are conjuring different uh, visuals in our mind. You might be conjuring some visual where you're walking down some solitary hallway of a school and no one else is there and some dude walks into that hallway with an AR and starts shooting. That's very different versus I'm in the cafeteria and there's 500 students in here making tons of noise and eating food and doing other disgusting and inappropriate things. And now someone comes in and starts shooting. Those are different situations. So it is very valid to be thinking about, you know, the right tool for the right situation and having some options there. Um, unfortunately, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about a firearm is that, you know, with, with a little bit of, you know, skill you can you can shoot from a good distance and hit a target whereas some of these other things we're talking about are pretty limited i mean certainly a yeah, mace pepper spray i can get a little bit further away than than a pen or something i have to have in a knife that i have to strike with uh, uh physically but those are all considerations uh here's some research riley then i'll throw it back to you yep so in the early 1970s there was a great concern about the number of students in elementary schools that were dying from school fires uh, it was a huge problem. Uh, you know, I mean, by huge, I mean, you know, a couple hundred kids a year or something. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like thousands, but but we had deaths that weren't cool. You know, probably the president was crying on TV because some kid somewhere died in a school fire and we had to do something about it. So it, the regulation was passed. I mean, laws were passed that said that schools had to have smoke alarms. They had to have sprinkler systems and they had to run drills. And at my kid's school, they do a fire drill monthly at least, at least monthly. So they're in school about nine months out of the year. So nine times out of the year, they're going to do a fire drill. And they got it down to a science. They're sprinklers. So, I mean, it's, and, and you know the last time a kid died in a school fire? It's been over 30 years. So we've had 30 years with zero fatalities from school fires because – Hey, you know, we got sprinkler systems and smoke alarms and we run drills. Uh, so it's great. Now, on the flip side, ask me how many times a year my son's school does a lockdown drill. How many times, Jacob? Twice. Yep. So, it, I mean, in 1970, it probably made a lot more sense to put a lot more emphasis on 
fire drills. But today, the fatality count is much higher from an active shooter going into a school um, than it is from fires, you know, by any number, because the, the fatality count for fires is zero. So it's a really interesting thing. You know, being a faculty member, you may or may not have a lot of influence in these kinds of conversations, right? You probably don't have enough influence to go into an administrator's office and say, we should allow guns. You know, that's probably not going to have, that's, that's, that's <laughs> going to be a tough fight. You, you may or may not want to be that guy, right? Yep. Uh, on, on the administrator's radar, but you might be able to go in and have a conversation about, Hey, how often, you know, do we, how, how often do we do lockdown drills? I've been doing some research. Um, I, you know, fired, you know, this is the number of fatalities of kids from fire fires these days. You know, this is the number of fatalities last year from active shooter events. I was thinking, you know, it might make sense. We do these lockdown drills more often, you know, simple things like that, uh, can also have an impact. And, and I can talk more about a lockdown drill and, you know, kind of what, what that looks like. And, and certainly our, our listener from Washington knows he's a faculty member. Um, but anyway, just something that's been on my mind lately is the, the, this huge disparity between fire drills and lockdown drills and, 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 and how it just makes zero sense to me whatsoever. Yep. Yeah, that's very interesting to consider. And, uh, man, it's, it's almost mind boggling to me to, 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 th- to think in 30 years there hasn't been a fatality in a public school from a fire. Zero. That's amazing. Zero. Wow. We have sprinklers. We have smoke alarms. We drill them sure, every single sure. month. <laughs> but still, that's it, that's that's really impressive. Yeah, um, it is impressive. Mm, man, that's we that's inspect pretty... those sprinklers. You know what? Every 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 quarter or something. I mean, we're we're just we're on that stuff. We are all yep. over it. Yep. Yeah, and my kids also too. And I, I imagine many kids in in most school districts now across the country do the those lockdown drills and and whatnot. My daughter came home maybe a month ago and said, "Dad, we have the we had the lockdown lockdown drill today." And it freaked me out. It, scare, it kind of scares her, you know. She's in third grade, and and she's pretty sensitive. Um, she, she's even kind of frightened by the fire drills, but she's more more or less used to that. Um, but uh, but it's it's very true. I mean, you're right that there are more deaths occurring each year, or and certainly within the last thirty years, as you have just shared, from active shooter uh, or mass shooter situations and, and mass casualty events in schools than from fires. Uh, certainly, our schools, our teachers, our, our uh, staff members in, in those schools, administrators could all be better pe- prepared and better trained as to how to handle these mass casualty events. Um, it's hard to, you know, obviously we could get, we could get down the into the political uh, rabbit hole of of. You know, by politics, I mean we could we could go down the rabbit hole of, hey, we should have more guns in schools. We should have teachers, we should have trained individuals inside the schools that can be that active defense inside the school in the, in, the, in the event that a situation occurs. But we know that that's a long shot, especially in most jurisdictions, like 95% of them. So what are some other things, other tools and ideas that, that you might have, Jacob, or maybe I'll share a couple here uh, to defend yourself in, in the event of a mass casualty event? And... Number one, I would say just about anything you can get your hands on that is hard and and or has some heft or weight to it that you can either swing or throw can be an effective tool or weapon. Chairs, heavy books, um, fire extinguishers can be very good uh, weapon to use. Once again, limited a little bit in range, but if you can throw it at somebody, you might at least. And then here's the key. If, if it comes down to a situation where you're caught out in the open and you've got 
a guy that's trying to shoot you or people around you, you're you're probably not going to be able to just run right at them, tackle them, take them down, unless you get that rare opportunity where they turn their back to you and you find that opportunity to, to get them from behind so they don't see you coming. But if they see you coming, if they know you're coming, you're probably going down. But if you've got something that you can throw at them, most people, even when they've got a gun in their hands, when they see a fire extinguisher coming at their head, what what are they going to do? They're going to duck. They're going to you know move out of the way because you don't want to get hit by that thing. It's a natural human response, right? And so if my point being is that you might not survive this active shooter event today, but you've got if it comes down to it and you have that one chance, that one opportunity, you've got to take it. You got to you got to do it because the alternative is not any better at all. So find that opportunity to use something either as a weapon or at least, at the very least, as a distraction device to get them to turn away, to, to shy away brief, even if, if it's brief, where you can close in, move in, and maybe you get, you, you're able to gain the upper hand. Mm-hmm. D- don't, don't lay down and just be a victim. Right, right. You know, there was a, a study done, and I, uh, maybe I could find it on YouTube. I remember it, was, it went the rounds really quickly. You know, it went viral right after the Sandy Hook uh, shooting in 2016, and the essential idea was they they did this study where they inflated uh, balloons, I think it was, and they put them in, the, in classrooms. And the essential idea was that these balloons would mimic would mimic children, and they'd put you know 30 of them in a, in a room or something. And then they had a, the shooter would use was using some sort of like you know air rifle, like a BB gun or something, and he would come into the classroom, throw the door open, and just start shooting. And they would time to see, you know, how many kids he could shoot in the in you know whatever number of minutes or time or something like that. And then they replayed the scenario, but this time they had all the the kids over in the cor- the other corner, and the kids would throw stuff, you know, whatever they had handy, you know, books, pencils, paper. They would just throw stuff at the guy when he came in the room. So this time he opens the door, he comes in the room with his with his rifle, and he starts trying to shoot these balloons, and he's just getting pelted, right? I mean, just just assaulted with just crap everywhere. And it was phenomenal, which is why I made it was so, such a viral video when it went around, because instead of being able to shoot something like 27 students in the time allotted, he was able to get like four or something. And it, 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 it really illustrated this point that it doesn't take much to buy time. It doesn't take much to buy time. Um, it, de- it does take a lot to completely you know, de- dehabilitate attack- an attacker to stop a threat, but it doesn't take much to just create a little time. Um, here's another thought that, that's been on mm-hmm. my mind, and this may be especially true um, for our faculty member, and that would be that you may not be able to go convince an administration or a legislative body to change laws or administrative rules for your school. But you might have a couple other faculty members in your department or in your part of the school that think the same way you do. And there is, I think, a great opportunity for some pre-planning with those specific faculty members. So maybe I'm a chemistry teacher and there's four other chemistry teachers and we all have classrooms pretty close by and then the biology guys are over there. You know, having a conversation with those guys saying, hey, have you ever thought about this? How do you feel about that? You know, and starting to get some common ground and saying, well, you know, what might we do collectively between us? You know, having a couple other adults handy might go a long, long way to helping you stop a, stop an attack. Um, you know, if, if someone does come into a, a classroom or if you're, you are caught off guard, a couple other teachers having pre-coordinated a plan and knowing that, hey, we're going to do X, Y, Z to distract or to buy some time. And then, you know, like you, you me, me, like we're going to go tackle that sucker and hold them down. Your odds just dramatically increased like threefold because you have two other adults working with you. So there's there's huge strength in numbers. 
Absolutely. Uh, that's that's the thing, you know. Many perpetrators of school shootings are typically cowards. And while we certainly can't guarantee that something as simple as throwing objects at a shooter is going to uh, deter them, uh, in some cases it may be just enough to – well, the key, one big key like you just touched on, Jacob, is slowing them down. Slowing them down is key. Every second that you can slow somebody down in a school shooting probably saves a life, right? And and that's that's huge. Even if it costs you your own, and, and I mean, I'm not advocating that everybody's got to go out and try to be heroes or anything. But if it's if you if you know it's it's come to that time or to that point, and you're gonna die anyway, then do everything you can to slow down that attacker, because it likely saves the life of somebody else. And and so that's that's one important key thing. Number two is as I was touching on just a moment ago, is that they may be cowardly enough that that little bit of resistance causes them to take pause and maybe, you know, they put the gun to their head and and they're done with it. Because a lot of times these guys, they've already made that decision that, you know, they're going to go out, guns a-blazing, that they're going to commit suicide. And a lot of times at the first sign of resistance or somebody, you know, countering their attack, they give up because they're just not interested in being confronted in that way. They're cowards. They're wimps. They're, yeah. So they're, they're, they're weak. Yeah. Exactly. It, here's another interesting thing, and I got I got this from uh, one of Grossman's books, I think on combat. But anyway, he had some interesting research that suggested that a lot of these mass murderer types, and he, he mentioned like the Johannesburg uh, school shootings and several other examples like I can't, I can't recall off the top of my head, but he talked about how a lot of these active shooters are stopped, not because they are physically stopped or because they run out of ammunition, but simply because somebody audibly tells them to stop. Yeah. Um, you know, that they're, they're, in, they're in the process of bang, 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 trying to kill as many of these other students as I can, and then all of a sudden they hear a real loud voice from somebody saying, stop, and they just, they just stop. Uh, and yep. it was it was remarkable. I remember reading that chapter of the book and thinking, well, that's freaking crazy. Uh, but it you know the, the research presented seemed pretty viable to me. And so that's another thought is that audio commands uh, can be really effective. And you might say, well, I don't want to you know the 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 BG to identify where I am or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah, maybe maybe that's a valid point. But but more importantly, yep. if if you're if there's already a threat, right? If the game is on now then you might find that a simple audio command can be very effective. And that might be another thing to tell some other faculty members or to put on a little memo that you might have permission to circulate or something like that. So audio commands can also be very effective. Mm-hmm. We have some good comments here, by the way. Uh, Kevin says, my six-year-old explained their lockdown drill as just in case a wild animal was in the halls. So educators can help make this understandable for children and make it an effective training drill. Absolutely. And I don't know exactly how they explain it to, to my kids at school. Um, I, you know, I, maybe it's lame of me that I've never thought to ask. Uh, I just know that any sort of drill like that is kind of makes my, some of my children very uh, anxious. Kevin also comments, it's not all that dissimilar from 9-11. Making a decision to fight brought down the plane in Pennsylvania versus allowing it to be another weapon. And that is so true. That is so key. You had passengers on that plane. They refused to be victims, even though it cost them their, their lives in the end. And they very well may have known that, but they could see the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And that was so key. That, that resistance brought that plane down 
we honor those that lost their lives that day and and in that plane crash. Uh, they they were all true heroes in that regard. Jason also comments. Clint Smith once said, "If you find yourself in a fight, do something. It may be wrong, but do something." <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's one from Ulysses S. Grant. He said. In war, indecision is more costly than wrong decisions. Yeah. Yeah, and so we have to keep this in, in perspective, obviously. I mean, these are great quotes and uh, great thoughts because I think we're talking about one, when you're in the heat and in, in the throes of battle, right? Because obviously inaction means you're just getting mowed right down, right? You're... <laughs> If you if you hesitated on the battlefield, you're going to lose that battle because the other guy is probably not hesitating. So it's better to do something than to not do anything at all. However, when we are when we are talking the context of deadly force, you know, justified deadly force in a self defense context, I just want to make sure we're, we're clear that you you don't necessarily always want to just do whatever come you know comes to your to your mind because. If you do something wrong in that sort of context, I mean, we're talking outside of school situations here, right? We're talking in in a typical concealed carry context where I'm, car- I'm carrying my gun, I'm in an encounter, I use my gun, and I just do whatever, well, you know, whatever I n- naturally comes to me or what you know, whatnot. So uh, be careful with that, right? Because we we definitely want to keep people from getting in trouble with those types of things. But I think when when you are the one that is more or less defenseless, I don't want to talk as though we are actually defenseless because we're not. Uh, Look for every opportunity, everything around you. I mean, I've got 30 different weapons, not including guns, just right within arm's reach of my desk here in my office, right? Find something, grab something, use that something. This mic stand, I could rip this right off the desk, and it's about four feet long. I'm going to use that sucker like a club, right? Whatever I have at my disposal, grab it use it, fight back. And of course, this is also making the assumption that you are faced with that with that requirement. Um, in most cases, in these, these school shootings and whatnot, uh, the, the procedure, of course, the, the lockdown is get everybody locked in their classrooms. That is an important thing, by the way. If, you're, if your child's schools don't have locks or the ability to lock their doors to their rooms, you better get on the phone with your school board or your school administrators and make sure they can do that. Because if they're not doing this, if they don't have the ability to lock those doors, those rooms, there's something wrong. Well, if they're um, not doing that, I hate to think all the other things they're not doing. So that's that's a very absolutely. commonly accepted best practice right now. Right. So if they, if, they're, if those classroom doors are not automatically shutting on command and definitely not locking, we have a huge problem. I would switch schools. Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, the procedure, what, is lock the door, get the kids and everyone in that room in a, in a corner or someplace. Lights off. A, a, yeah, lights off, away from the doors, away from the windows where you can't be easily seen, and then everybody needs to be quiet, right? Because in most cases, most situations, you know, a shooter is not going to want to waste time deal, dealing with that locked door because... I mean, especially if he doesn't have a shotgun or something, if he just has an AR or a pistol or, or whatnot, it's going to take actually quite a few rounds to shoot your way through that door. It's, it's harder than it looks. Folks, if you've never tried shooting through a door, and I, I've had that privilege once, it's not that easy. A shotgun makes it a lot easier, but with a, with a small caliber rifle or, or your handguns, it's, it's a lot. You know. So the point is, 
they're going to be deterred a lot of times by those locked doors, so we move on. But we're assuming that someone has gained access to a room or you're caught out in the open. What would you do? How would you handle it? What other thoughts do you have, if any, Jacob, on this on this topic? I was going to share a couple of resources. Um, you know, we have done an episode in the past. It was I just looked it up, episode number forty-four about concealed carry on campus. I know that that you know is a little bit maybe outside this context, but certainly know that we have given a lot of conversation in the past to the idea of carrying concealed on a campus. So if you're a college student or if you're a faculty member at a secondary educational facility then episode 44 would be really worth looking up and listening to. Uh, make sure you just go find us on iTunes or on Google Play, search Concealed Carry Podcast, and then go back in the archive and find episode 44. Uh, another thought that I had was uh, I thought I thought it was worth mentioning Utah. Utah is special. Utah is only of the 50 states that I'm aware of, like totally correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the only state of all 50 that allows someone with a concealed carry permit to carry that concealed handgun into an elementary school, junior high, middle, or high school. So that would be the only state I'm aware of, and I think it's just worth mentioning. I think that law passed in like 2009 or something like that, yeah. and it uh, maybe before that, more like 2005 or so. Anyway, the, Utah does allow that, and, and so that's kind of unique. That's kind of a cool thing. If anyone's looking to be able to point to a state and give an example of a state, you could say, hey, in Utah, they, they're now you know, probably like 15 years-ish, at least a decade, of allowing uh, faculty members to carry concealed handguns in uh, you know, elementary, middle, junior high, and high schools. With great success. Yeah, with, with zero incidents. Well, by incidents, I mean we've yet to have a mass shooting from an active shooter on one of those campuses uh, so far. Um, we certainly have had a couple instances in Utah, I can think of two only, uh, where like there's been a negligent discharge, a faculty member's gun has neg had a negative discharge. So you can call that a, you know, a problem or not, but certainly we haven't seen any active shooter events. Yeah. Uh, and that may or may not be in part to uh, the fact that, that you know, teachers are carrying guns. What is clear, and this is probably more important, is what we haven't seen in Utah are all the things that legislators say would happen. You know, all the, the students overpowering the gun from the teacher or the students you know, finding the gun in the teacher's desk and taking it or teachers getting irate with students and shooting them. You know, those, these are the kind of crazy things that legislators say would happen if we allow this kind of thing. And none of that's happened. Yep. Now, uh, another comment from Jason, and he says, any school that accepts tax dollars, and I think he's implying, because uh, I believe private schools in Utah, Jacob, uh, could, being by nature of being private, could actually restrict those weapons on campus. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, so the you have to allow guns on campus thing is, is specific to schools. School, public schools. Public schools, basically. And public, yeah, the, you know, how we define public could vary a little bit from state to state. My kids go to a charter school uh, here in Colorado. So so as, as charter schools, the, the school itself is private. The, the employees are not employees of the government, but they do receive grant money and public funding, you know, tax dollar funding. So that's, that's one where I honestly have no idea if my children's school qualifies as a public school or not. I, I, I kind of think not, but, you know, I need an attorney to tell me, uh, or probably better it would be a, a jury in a courtroom, but I don't plan on testing it out anytime soon. Yep. And my kids, uh, you know, we're just not as fancy as you are, Jacob. We just go to one of those lowly public schools, inner city school. <laughs> it's right? inner city's pushing it, but yeah, sure. 
<laughs> no, we're not in the inner city, but uh, it, yeah. Anyway, so uh, it, it, my kids have great uh, teachers. We're very blessed to have some amazing teachers. Well, I think we're going to wrap up that that discussion for today. It's really really good stuff there. I hope this is valuable for those of you listening or viewing. Um, on to picks of the week, and I'm going to go ahead and go first, Jacob. My pick this week, I'm wearing it right now. Let's see if I can get it off the belt. And that is, this is the Bravo Concealment. Uh, this is the torsion holster uh, intended primarily for appendix carry. Uh, the torsion, what it means by that is it's built into the, the design and shape of this holster that where you see the clips, uh, the, the, the shape of that pocket that the you know the whole of the holster itself is actually kind of canted or turned inward towards the body uh it's hard if you're not viewing this you're, if you're not able to see it it's difficult to understand how this works on uh, the audio only but uh basically it just turns the the grip of the gun into the body so it doesn't doesn't you know print as much this would kind of take the place of a claw that is so common on a lot of appendix holsters these days uh, just to report on this, by the way, I mean, I really like this holster. I think it's well-made. It's it's a good quality product. Uh, Bravo Concealment's been around for a time, and they've become very popular. Uh, they, they have a, a good name for, you know, as far as people know them for good quality holsters and excellent customer service, and also being very reasonably priced, too. Uh, but a comment on this torsion design, while I think it's really cool, really clever, really innovative, and it, and it does work, I don't think it works quite as well as a claw works. So, I mean, while it does pull that grip of the gun in tighter, uh, I've noticed with my other holsters that have claws on them, they actually work better at doing that. So, so it doesn't, I mean, it's better than a, a, a standard appendix holster doesn't have any claw or any type of device that pulls the grip in to the body. But it just doesn't—it just doesn't quite replace the claw for me. And I've kind of looked at this particular design and thought, well, I wonder if there's something more that could be done, without necessarily adding a full-on claw to just get that little extra little bit. Um, on this P320, this is a compact model, uh, so it does have a little bit shorter grip than the uh, full-size one. It, it still sticks out a little bit more than I'd like it to. So it's been a little bit difficult to get it to conceal. I can conceal it okay with a black T-shirt like I'm wearing today. But something that's not black that doesn't hide those bulges as well, I can't really conceal this this P320 compact with this uh, Bravo concealment holster the way I'd like to. So I tend to go with looser shirts, patterned shirts, or black shirts, and then I'm able to pull it off. So that's my pick this week. It's a great holster. Uh, so you know, with every product, I usually find a thing or two that I can kind of uh, complain about. But it, you're funny, it dude. Out. Every single time I see Riley, he's wearing some new holster. <laughs> you, 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 you just test them all, dude. This is how you roll. Yeah, that's, so absolutely. My, my pick this week is Kroger Foods. Okay. Yes, I know. Leave it like, to Jacob to always pick some weird, random, non-gun-related thing. Kroger's great. So I think they're based in, out of Cincinnati. I could be totally wrong about that. Maybe someone else knows. But Kroger is a big food uh, food chain. They have a lot of brands. You've may you know, you've probably seen Kroger brand foods, but you may not realize the connection. So you know, these are all stores owned by Kroger. So you have King Supers, Smith's, City Markets, Fred Meyer, uh, Fry's Food Stores. Um, uh, what I said, Smith's, Ralph's, Payless, Owens, um, and they've yeah. got a line of, con Food for of less, Fred convenience Meyer. stores or gas stations, yep. loaf, loaf and, and jug. jug. Mm -hmm. um, so those those are all Kroger 
brand uh, owned yep. companies. So there's a lot of things I like about Kroger. Certainly I love that they, they're really into having you know, fresh produce from local farms. Um, they're really, they have great delis and bakeries and they do a lot of things on site. They actually cut meat and things like that. But relevant to this podcast, what I really appreciate about Kroger is that there are darn near zero big grocery chains that don't have anti-gun policies. Um, you know, Safeway, it has an anti-gun policy. Uh, Whole Foods, wow, they're super anti-gun. I mean, they actually mm. post the sign on every single location. Uh, Natural Grocers, Sprouts, um, Target is questionably anti-gun. Uh, but, but Kroger, despite massive pressure from a lot of lobbyist groups and other BS anti-gunners, has stuck to their guns and said, we abide by local laws. And that is the only gun policy They've put out as a company, they're not going anti-gun. They're not saying they don't want you to carry in their stores. They are simply saying that they abide by local laws. And I just love it. I just appreciate that such a big, massive brand has has refused to play to that kind of pressure. And so go Kroger. Yeah. I I am looking at the actual statement from them, and as I know you looked it up, and I, I really like that they say, we know our customers are passionate on both sides of the issue and we trust them to be responsible in our stores. That's cool. <laughs> They're smart. Uh, you see so many companies like Target uh, basically take the low road and say, oh, what do we do about this? Well, let's just um, say that we, we don't prohibit them outright, but we just like would appreciate it if you don't carry guns in our stores. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, that's also Starbucks. That's what Starbucks said. That's, yep. that's what Target said. It's like, what a cop-out. You know, but King Supers or, or Kroger Foods just so perfectly said, we trust you, our customers, and we abide by the local laws. And I love them for it. Okay. That's a fair point. That's a good pick. So, folks, if you didn't know already and you are interested in supporting, and I don't know that they would come out and say outright they're pro-Second Amendment, but that's about as close as you can get for a major corporation. So if you believe in supporting pro, pro-2A stores and businesses, why don't you just go support those guys instead of the other less awesome grocery stores? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, we appreciate all of you for joining us for the podcast. Uh, it's our pleasure to put this on each week. Uh, just a reminder that today's podcast is sponsored by, of course, our favorite Guardian Nation, GuardianNation.com sponsor. You want to go check out GuardianNation.com. Consider becoming a member today. Recently, by the way, I just want to tease that uh, our members, many Guardian Nation members that hit their one-year mark got a little special gift from us. And so, yeah, just know that we do some really cool stuff for our members. We like to thank them and give back to them where we can. And then also the other sponsor today, and these are both posted in the comments of the Facebook feed today, and we'll make sure these are in the show notes, of course, of, of, of this episode as, as, it, as we do in every episode. But in the show notes... Uh, our, our, you'll see also posted is our other sponsor today, which is Next Level Training's CERT Pocket Pistol. Great little training gun for those of you that are carrying those compact or micro subcompact guns these days. This one's a little bit better size for that purpose if you're interested in dry fire training for uh, with using a smaller uh, uh, CERT pistol. Now, I don't have one of those pocket pistols yet. I've, here's my full-size one. And uh, I just love this thing. You know, every day I probably do at least 100 reps just sitting right here at my desk where I just grab it, I pick it up, and I, I find points. I've got a couple targets on the wall. I've got a light switch I use all the time as a target. Uh, and so, yeah, 
it's just awesome to pick it up periodically, get a little bit of dry fire in. Very informal dry fire, but it's still, I think it's still valuable and still helpful. Not as valuable as if it was dedicated dry fire practice, but it's just fun to do. So go pick up one of these great little cert pistols from Next Level Training. Concealedcarry.com forward slash cert, I think is a, a, a link. I think that'll work. I'll double check. But if yep. worst case yep. scenario, concealedcarry.com forward slash shop. And then on the left-hand side, you can click on CERT as a brand. It'll pull all the CERT products that we have. Yep, absolutely. There you go. So we wrap up another episode today. We, once again, appreciate you for tuning in. Those of you on Facebook that have, that was a, that were a part of this today, it was good to see you and comment and, and exchange things with you guys today. And also many of you thousands that subscribe and listen to the podcast in the audio-only format uh, if you haven't already subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button to the podcast or turn on Facebook Live notifications so you don't miss things on Facebook either. And uh, also coming up just a little more than a week from today, uh, I'll be hitting the road and Jacob soon thereafter flying to Las Vegas for the SHOT Show. And so we've mentioned that already in a couple episodes of the podcast we look forward to, to going down there and doing that, and we, we hope to bring some really awesome content and videos and such to you. A couple of things. We are going to be broadcasting live from several vendors' booths while we are there. So if you are at SHOT Show, you're going to want to come and check out, and we'll get the specific schedule put up on the site or in the show notes of the, of the podcast or whatever. Maybe we'll announce this more specifically in our next episode. But we will be broadcasting from Safari Land. Springfield Armory. Now, that one I know for a fact is Wednesday from 1 to 5 p.m. So if you are in, at SHOT Show and you want to go check out Springfield Armory's booth between 1 and 5 p.m. on Wednesday, what is? I don't know what the date is, but it's Wednesday during that SHOT week, come by Springfield Armory's booth and say hello. We'll be broadcasting also from XS Sites. And uh, so, yeah, and we're still locking down one or two more vendors that will be broadcasting on-site from SHOT Show with the Concealed Carry Podcast, and we're excited to do that. So hope to see some of you there. So any last words, Jacob? Nope, I'm good. Hasta luego. So with that, we'll sign off. Thanks again, everyone. We remind you to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.